you got to keep your eyes on what happens behind the scenes at VBS. So, kids, I hope you didn't listen to that song too well. We don't want anyone breaking their legs, and so don't do that. But we do, we do want to say, have fun at camp. And so, um, let me do this. Let me pray for you. Guys, I don't know if you realize it, man. It's just been a crazy couple of weeks, and there is no one who has bore the brunt of that more than Mr. Scott. And so, um, you guys are hopping on the bus and getting ready to go. So, we're going to pray for you, and then you guys can be dismissed. God, we thank you so much for our kids. We pray for this week at camp. God, there are just so many ways that there are so many competing voices and there's so much confusion tearing our kids' attentions and their morals in different directions. So God, we pray with great fervency for the things that you will do in our kids' lives this week. We pray that you will help them to, beyond the food fights and the fun and the games and the late nights and early mornings, that they will um, hear your still small voice, that they will hear from you that they will hear about the way that they are supposed to walk, that they will find you, that they will trust you, that they will obey you. So God, we pray especially for um, Scott and for all of the other leaders. I don't even know that I want to mention their names, Jonathan Brown, Marcy, Katie Max, Miss Alice. God, we just pray that you give them strength, that you'll help them to love on these kids in a supernatural way, and that they will sense God's love as, as you love them through the leaders that are going. So give them strength, keep them safe, and allow this to just be a wonderful week of enjoying uh, the friendships with their other friends, but connecting with you in a newer and deeper way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, kids, have fun. Everybody in bed by 10 o'clock, okay? No, 11. 10.45. Okay. Uh, I love it. <clears throat> well, this morning we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're, we're kind of stopping after this. We're going to go into a new series in just a couple of weeks related to uh, kind of a vision for where God wants us to go, kind of understanding who we are as a church and what unique opportunities are set out in front of us and ways that God wants us to be unique. We, we're not trying to be like any other church. It's not a competition competition for us is to be faithful to who God has called us to be. And so we're going to take some extended time once the school year starts uh, to deal with that. But today, we look at the, this is our last opportunity to look at how King Jesus tells his church how they're supposed to relate to each other. Matthew 18, high water mark of Jesus talking about um, his kingdom expressed through the lives of Christians. And he's talking specifically about how God's people are to treat each other. And so in Matthew 18, we've seen a number of things. The chapter began with talking about how our approach and our attitude towards little ones, not children, but young ones in the faith, and how we don't want to do anything to trip them up. We don't want to do anything to be an obstacle. As a matter of fact, we are so serious and circumspect about our sin, we're willing to chop off our hands and poke out our eyes if they cause us to sin. He goes on and he talks about how a Christian must have a seeking heart like God does. And so when somebody goes astray, we don't just say, hey, we're going to let them do their own thing. As Christians, we care and we seek after the people the way that God seeks after people. He goes and he goes on and he continues. And the care that we express for God's people isn't just one that looks out. It's not just one that seeks. But when we find out that someone has intentionally or unintentionally stumbled into sin, our love corrects. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them that they're doing something that's bad for them? 
And so we have a love that gets involved and we seek to correct and restore a brother. And so now we come to the very end of this whole kind of extended story that Jesus is telling about his church and we talk about uh, a care that forgives. Forgives. We've just talked about correcting. So what happens when that correcting bears fruit? What do we do with them? We forgive. We restore them. So here's the question. How many of you forgiveness is a really easy thing? Anybody? Anybody here like to kind of stew on it for a little while? Yeah, I'll forgive you, but give me a couple weeks. You know what's sad? There are some people who today are where they're at in life because they've never forgiven someone for something that has happened in the past. That stinks. Because as much as you think is like as much as you think you're hurting someone else by not extending forgiveness, the one who pays the price is you. They may not even be thinking about you or whatever the incident was that happened years ago. But there are people who get caught up. They don't go to church anymore. They don't talk to this person. They don't have a relationship with this person because there's unforgiveness. And so Jesus is talking about this. And he, he is very serious about sin in the congregation. He says, we're supposed to go and we're supposed to confront people. But I think it's important for us to remember that we are to be at war with sin in the congregation, but not at war with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to seek reconciliation and restoration. So after all of this talk about sin and going and confronting and trying to restore someone, Peter kind of gets to the point where he says, all right, Jesus, I got a question. I think I know what you're talking about. Let me see if I've got this right. And so in uh, Matthew chapter 18, we'll begin in verse 21. Jesus tells a story in relationship to Peter's question that is important for us to hear. For those of you who don't have your own copy of the scriptures, page 695, the Bible right in front of you. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, take that home as a gift from Northside Baptist Church. Um, Jesus has been talking. Peter says, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Seven times. It's pretty good. You might go, man, Peter, you're kind of putting limits on forgiveness, bro. That's not right. Before you get too hard on Peter, I want you to understand something. <clears throat> uh, in Peter's day and age... Modern rabbis would teach that a kind of a three-strike rule. You forgive someone up to three times. Fourth time, oh, sorry. Now, we kind of have, we, you know, before we get on the Jews too hard, we do the same thing. Have you ever heard the phrase, fool me once, shame on you? Fool me twice, shame on me? We have a two-strike rule. We don't even have a three-strike rule. So the Jews actually did better than we do. So for them, three times, but not four. So Peter goes, Watch this. Jesus is going to be super impressed. Three times two is six. Six plus one is seven. How about seven times, Jesus? I'm like doubling what the rabbi said, and I added one, and seven is like the number of perfection. Jesus says, I am not impressed. Not really kind of the spirit of what I'm getting at. Verse 22, I tell you not as many as seven times, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. Jesus' reply is really simple. He says, it's law that counts. Grace doesn't. If you're being gracious to someone, you're not saying, hey, that's number three. You got one more life to live, you know. You got, you got one more, you got nine lives, you got whatever. We don't count. And so Jesus is not saying four, 470 is okay, 471, you know, not, not going to do that. It, we don't count. We just don't, we don't pay attention to all of that. So in relationship to Peter's question, the rest of the passage that we're looking at, verse 22 through 35,
becomes story time with Jesus. He says, all right, Peter, you asked the question. Let me tell a little story to kind of drive the point home. And the story is, it's a compelling story. It kind of breaks down into a couple scenes. And so in verses 23 through 27, we see the first scene, which is a story about this first servant and a gracious king. Listen to what God's word says. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this pronouncement, the slave fell face down before the king and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. Pretty amazing story. Pretty amazing grace. But I think for uh, some of us, the uh, kind of bite to the story is kind of lost on us because some of these details, they're not how we talk about things. Like we don't use talents as a unit of currency. So what in the world does he owe here? Well, here's some things that are important to know. Uh, The talent was the largest denominational currency of its time. Like, I, I asked this question and nobody corrected me. I think is a $1,000 bill the largest U.S. currency? Is that right? I don't know if there's anything larger than a $1,000 bill. And so a talent was the largest type of currency that there was. So it's, it's, it's big. They don't have anything bigger that they can talk about. Also, the number 10,000 was the largest number in Greek that actually had a specific word associated with it. It's the word myrios, from which we get the word myriad, meaning a bunch So he owes a bunch of talents. He owes 10,000 talents. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to you because you don't know how much talent is. So a talent would be equivalent to about 20 years' wages. Let me say that again. One talent would be equivalent of about 20 years' wages. So over your lifetime, you might make three talents. How much does this joker owe? 10,000 talents. So let's just kind of do some math. My wife's not here to correct me, so if I get it wrong, I'm okay. Um... Let's just assume for argument's sake. Some people are going to be higher, some people are going to be lower. If we assume a $40,000 salary, $40,000 a year, how does that turn into 10,000 talents? Well, what do you make over 20 years? Multiply that by, you know, 10,000. You're talking an $8 billion debt that this guy owes. $8 billion. That debt level is shocking. That's like the debt level of a small country, not a person. And for whatever reason, we don't know what this guy's business was. We don't know what he did. But he owes $8 billion. He owes 10,000 talents. And the king is selling accounts. It's maybe the end of the year. He's trying to figure out what's on his books. And it's time to settle accounts. And he says, you know what this dude owes? We're going to liquidate everything he has, even his livelihood. Sold into slavery, a common practice. So what's the guy say? He falls before the king. In, in, in a way that I, I, I don't know that I would have done anything different, he asks for patience to allow him to do what? Repay. It's impossible. There's no way he's going to make up that much money. But he still asks and says, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. What's he get? It's a king go. No way, you fool. There's no way you're going to pay me back. No, he asks for patience and time to repay, and he gets complete amnesty and total remission. King says, go out of here. You're free. You don't know a thing. 
That's amazing. And so for those of us that are in awe at the size of debt, how, what did he buy? Did like his chariot have rims on it or something like that? What in the world? He must have a lot of horsepower, you know? We should be more in awe at the breathtaking grace that this king demonstrated to one of his subjects to completely forgive his debt. Didn't even say, he didn't say, don't worry, don't worry about it, don't think about it. And in the same way, we should see ourselves in this story because the debt for us is our sin and there is no prize tag we can put on our sin against God. It's massive. And the temptation for us is to always play these comparison games. And so you sit there and you go, I wore a tie to church. That joker over there wore a polo shirt. God likes me better. Or I put a $20 bill and he put a $10 bill. Or, you know what, I went to church. What about all those guys that didn't go to church this morning? Or, you know, the, that guy, the drunk driver, you know, my sin, certainly not as bad as his sin. And we start to play these comparison games. And here's the problem. When you dare to compare, the only thing that you do is show what you don't know. You tend to think that everyone else's sin is worse than yours, and you don't really understand the depth of your own sin. Here's the thing, and this is, this is mind-blowing, but if you get this, you, you will be in a much healthier spot. Your sin against God is not the individual things that you have done bad and got caught for. Your sin against God is infinite. It's infinite. You hear people who have problems with God, you know, which is not really the smartest thing to do. But there are people who go through life and they have problems with God. And they go, listen, if I live 70 years and I don't love and obey Jesus and I have to spend eternity in hell, that just doesn't seem like it balances out well. You kind of follow what I'm saying? They go, 70 years, eternity in hell. You know, maybe I should have like 70 years in hell and then get like probation or something like that. People think like that. Here's the problem. If your sin against God is infinite, you could spend a thousand years in hell, not pay one penny off of your debt, and not be one inch closer to heaven than when you first started, because your sin is infinite. Here's an illustration. I don't like to think about it like this, because churches aren't safe places, we have found out after Charleston. But somebody comes in here and blows me away, and I die. They're going to go to jail. And if they, they do everything right, in a few years, they'll be able to get back out. Now, don't, nobody thinks that's right, but for good behavior, your sentence is commuted and it's shortened and then you get out. Same person, if they go and kill the President of the United States, they ain't ever getting out. Same crime. And listen, it's not like the President is more of an American than I am. That's certainly not the case. It's certainly not that he's more of a human being than I am. It's not that he has any particular value that I don't have. It's because of his title and his office and his position that the same crime committed against me, committed against him, bears a greater sentence. And in the same way, when we rob God of his glory, you can't pay that back. It's impossible. So the problem that we have is that our problem is too deep and our pockets are too shallow. And we kind of go through life going, you know, it's just a mistake. Here's the thing that is terrible about sin for a Christian is you know better. I know better. And when you sin... You are intentionally telling God, yes, we're just saying about how praiseworthy you are, how glorious you are, how you're the best thing in all the universe, but you know, I'm going to focus on something else. I, I need some me time. I'm going to focus on what I want. And the Bible says that we are supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means anytime you ever think about anything about how wonderful God is, you are sinning. So since this worship service has started and your mind has wandered, you have sinned enough to condemn you to hell for all eternity because sin against God is infinite 
Because if God is all glorious and the most perfect being that we can conceive of, how can we not be enraptured with the fact that we have a relationship with him and he sent his son to bear this, pay the debt, to erase the 10,000 talents that we owe, and yet we just don't think about God all that much. Like this man, he thinks that he can pay. He says, hey, King, give me some, give me some time. Be patient and, and I'll pay you back. And if we think we can pay, the only thing we're doing is betraying that we undervalue our sin. Really, you think you can pay? You can't. That's a good story for us to stop at, but that's not where the scriptures start. The story enters scene two. And scene two is an interesting one. It's the story of the same servant, the first servant. But now there's an unfortunate lessor debtor. In verses 28 through 30, listen to what God's word says. But that slave, the first slave, he went out and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. So he grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him. Listen to what the second slave said. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. Does that sound similar? Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same things that this first dude said. He should see himself in this second person. And what happens? He wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw this second guy in prison until he could pay what was owed. Here's the irony. There's a contrast that's set up between the second scene and the first scene. It is almost entirely reenacted just with one different actor. Now, the king is removed from the story, and the first servant who was forgiven this massive debt stands in the king's place. He is the one who was owed money, and now there's a second slave who owes the first slave money, and there's a comparison between the amounts of money that is owed. Now, 100 denarii is equivalent to about 12 weeks of pay. We could say, kind of in modern terms, the second slave owes the first slave about $10,000. How much did the first slave owe? $8 billion. Second slave, $10,000. And here's the thing that's so crazy. While the words are the exact same, and the first slave should see himself and his fellow servant, he does the most absurd thing in the world. He throws him in jail for over 100 denarius debt. Here's what makes that so absurd. is according to uh, Bible encyclopedias, um, secular history, you could buy, you could buy an inexpensive slave for 500 denarii. So for 20% of what this guy's worth, he throws him in prison. If there's anyone that could repay, this second dude could probably do it. It's only $10,000. It's not $8 billion. And so you have this comparison between the sums. The sums are not the same. The words are almost identical, and the reactions are completely opposite. So we get through with the first scene. We move into the third scene, and you see these other servants that are watching what has happened, and they're distressed, and they go and report to the king who is enraged when he hears about what is happening in his kingdom. Verses 31 through 35. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed, And they went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after the king had summoned the first slave, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? 
And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. And then Jesus concludes his little parable. And he says, So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. The entire goal with all of this has been repentance and reconciliation for the person who is forgiven to be a forgiver. And here's the thing that's ironic is when it comes to personal forgiveness, you know, we think kind of circle, circle, dot, dot, now I got my Jesus shot. Now that I'm forgiven, it's like the end of the road. I'm done. Forgiveness is the beginning of the road because if you are forgiven, you are expected to be a forgiver. So there is all, all of the life, whenever you come to Christ, at this point, the rest of life that you have, you're expected to flesh out the character of your master. That's why the king gets so mad at this guy who is glad to receive forgiveness, but he doesn't want to give one cent of it to anyone else. The thing that we have to understand is when the first servant was forgiven, there were no conditions in order for him to receive forgiveness. But there were some expected consequences. There's a world of difference between a required condition for forgiveness and an expected consequence as a result of forgiveness. <clears throat> he didn't, the king didn't ask the slave you know, to jump tall buildings or to run faster than a speeding bullet. He didn't ask for anything supernatural. The very simple thing that he asked is that forgiveness received should become forgiveness conveyed. If you have got it, you should give it. It's a consistent theme throughout the Bible. And here's the thing, by um, <clears throat> priority of placement, okay, this is the end of Matthew chapter 18. It, there's a period at the end, it's done. So Jesus is talking about his church, and he concludes his entire conversation about how the church should relate to one another by ending with a story about forgiveness. In the last sentence in this chapter, on the church, when he says, so my heavenly Father will do to you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, I think this is what he's trying to say. By the rule of last emphasis, he's trying to say that within the Christian community, the most heinous and grievous of sins for a Christian to commit is unforgiveness. So how many of you would say, hey, listen, I, I, you know, I know some people that are you know, guilty of really serious sin. You know, terrorists, you know, crazy people, you know, they're, they're the danger. And Jesus is saying the biggest danger in the church is for Christians to not live out what they say they believe to want the forgiving grace of God, but to not want the transforming grace of God. And I think in a way that is kind of off the chart for us, he says to, to be an unforgiving Christian is one of the most dangerous things that can happen. And so what's he do? He turns, he turns the first servant over to the jailers, which is a metaphor for punishment. Did you catch what it said? The guy owes $8 billion worth of money and current currency. And he says he turned him over to the jailers for him to be tortured until he basically paid what he owed. You ever heard about paying a pound of flesh? How much, how much torture would you have to go through for, to pay back $8 billion? I don't want to think about that. That's like, that's like one of those movies I don't go see. That's like a horror movie. He's saying this is what's going to happen. He's never going to pay it back. He's going to be tortured forever. And in the same way that there was an expectation for this first slave, there's an expectation for us. Because when you understand biblical history and where 
the time that we occupy, it's very interesting. We live between the time of an astonishing forgiveness that was offered to us at the cross and a frightening judgment that will come at the chair of God's throne. We live between the cross and we live between the chair. And the question that comes to us is, will we extend the extravagant grace that we have received or will we display an inconceivable heartlessness like the servant? What are you going to do? How are you going to prove the truthfulness of your confession by your action? Are you going to be one who forgives? Are you going to be one that kind of stews on and holds a grudge? How are you going to handle that? You see, here's the thing. When we talk about forgiveness, there's a lot of guilt that goes around. Because we've all heard the phrase, forgive and forget. What? You know what book of the Bible that is? It's my favorite book. It's First and Second Suggestions. Um, <clears throat> it's not in the Bible. And so how many of you have tried to forgive someone and like you still remember what they did? Am I the only one? Thank you, Donya, for raising your hand. All right? So like, have you not forgiven them? You have? Here's the deal. God says he, he promises to throw our sins away as far as the east is from the west. What do we know about God? What does God know? God knows all things. Even things like you would do in a different situation. He knows what you would have chosen. He knows it all. So does God get like divine amnesia all of a sudden when he says, you know, bless you, my son, you're forgiven? No, he doesn't get amnesia. When God says that he forgets it, the forgetting is a promise to not use your sin against you. Husbands, when you have that little argument with your wife, do you bring up you know, dirty laundry from like two months ago so that this fight is now about that fight? That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is a promise to not hold it against you. What are you going to do? <clears throat> are you going to show extravagant grace or are you going to show inconceivable heartlessness? If God's salvation is so great, how can you not forgive others? How can you not give it to others? And the answer is, I have kind of pondered this, is... I don't know another solution besides this. The only reason you will not forgive others is because of idolatry. You bow down to a statue, and it might not be a little graven image, but it might be the reflection that you see in the mirror. You worship yourself. And what happens is, you, you do, I hate doing all this math because it makes my brain hurt, but we come up with a little equation. And um, your sin against me is greater than my sin against God. Every single one of us does this equation. If you are not a forgiver, what you are saying is whatever stupid minor thing someone has done to you, well, that, that's provocative. Can you believe how they treated me? And we don't think at all. That, wow, can you believe how I treated God? How you treat me is greater than how I treat God. And friends, that is straight up idolatry. You may not bow down to an idol. You may not burn incense to a, something carved out of wood or stone, but you are just as, just as much an idolater as people in the Old Testament that bowed down to things that their own hands made. And so the truth that we need to remember is that our guilt before God is unendingly greater than anyone's guilt in relationship to us. The thing that is crazy, like, I, I, I can't stand Facebook. It drives me crazy. <clears throat> it, it seems like everywhere I go, everyone is talking about Cecil the Lion. Two weeks ago, how many of you knew who Cecil the Lion was? Like, is he like a, was he in a movie? I mean, like, he's Cecil the Lion. Like, I, I thought there were a bunch of them. I thought they traveled in packs. But he's singular. Like, he's, Facebook page? I don't know. And listen, you know what happened? There might be laws that were broken, and people need to be accountable for that. But you know what? 
God has told us we have dominion over the animals, and praise God, we get to eat them. Okay? So outside of whatever the legal issues are that need to be addressed, man is exercising dominion that God has given him over, over animals, and now people are more freaked out about an animal that's dead than Planned Parenthood. And we, we play this game where we're so offended about what people do to us, and we don't even have the half of it about what, how we have provoked God to his face. Friends, if you are a Christian and you are disobeying with impunity, then fear for your soul. Fear for your soul. Because it is one thing to receive God's forgiving grace, but we know who receives God's forgiving grace because they manifest his transforming grace. We don't have to be bitter, unforgiving people. We offer this grudging and measly forgiveness. It's like my kids when they fight and they're not ready to kiss and make up yet, but I walk in the room and then they go, I love you, Caleb. I love you, Colin. No, you don't. If I wasn't here, you'd be tearing each other's faces off. But because I'm in the room, they give a measly and grudging forgiveness. And here's the challenge. Jesus says that the forgiveness that you've got to give in verse 35 is where? From the heart. There is nothing that is easy about that. There is nothing, let's just call it what it is, there is nothing natural about that kind of forgiveness, but it is Christian. Because those whom God forgives, he transforms. And he allows Christians to be what they are, little Christs, who demonstrate his character by living lives transformed by grace. So friends, we have been offered the glorious grace of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Christ and the privilege that we are given through union with Him and walking with Him by His Spirit is a transforming grace that allows us to pray with integrity. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's pray. God, I pray that you help us to understand just the depths of our own depravity. We are so, oh, just royally offended when people sin against us, and yet we think our sin against you is a small thing. God, help us to understand the ways that, as Christians, we should know better, and yet we intentionally rob you of your glory and think nothing of it. So God, today I pray for every single one of us, for the oldest of us to the youngest of us, that you give us a heart that bleeds for the things that you bleed for. That we believe the things that you want us to believe. That we agree with you about how just messed up we are. We don't even have to, have to, have to be Christians this morning to realize what a tragedy unforgiveness is. There's a bunch of bitter people walking around. They're angry. God, you promise us a grace that not only forgives our massive debt, but you promise to not just deal with our future, you promise to change us right now if we will but ask you. So I pray today, God, if there are those that don't understand your forgiving grace, if there are those that don't understand your transforming grace, that this day, this Lord's Day, can be a day of newness for them. That they can experience new life in you, not just the joy of forgiveness, but the... um, 
awesomeness of seeing how you work in our life to make us more like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.